0: Hey, everyone. Mr. P here from the Geeky Guys with Mr. Dave once again. And uh, this is a special episode of Tea Break Podcast.
1: Thank you, Mr. P. Indeed it is. We're very excited. Uh, we've got two guests for you this time. Uh, we've got uh, two co-executive producers from the brand new Star Trek show, Star Trek Prodigy. Yep. Uh, and that is co-executive producer Patrick Krebs and co-executive producer and also head writer Aaron Waltke. Um, Patrick has worked on over 200 hours of television uh, across 15 years of his career, since 2016, has produced over 40 hours of hit television content for children. Uh, In 2018, he was nominated for an Emmy Award for his work on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, Our second guest, Aaron Waltke, uh, is an American screenwriter, Emmy-winning Annie nominated executive producer and showrunner. Um, probably best known for his work on Glamour, Till Tauros, Troll Hunters, Tales of Arcadia.
0: Um, welcome, Patrick and Aaron. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having us. Yes, sure. absolutely.
0: Um predominantly, of course, we're here to talk about Star Trek Prodigy, which um has uh it's been out a little while in different places, but Paramount Plus has just launched here in the UK as well. Yes, so,
2: very exciting, very exciting, very exciting that you guys can finally get your hands on uh, on product. I know, it, finally watch it.
0: From I mean, it's been it's been obviously uh, in the ether for for some time in the UK. Like, is it? When's it coming? When's yeah. it not? And the whole, you know the launch of Paramount Plus was sort of when's it coming? When's it not? Because obviously, Strange New Worlds, we have really wanted to watch that as well. So yeah, um, it's good it's yeah finally we've got Very it dave <laughs>
1: um but we did have the um introduction to the first episode of prodigy We to mentioned here at uh destination star trek europe didn't we at the xl they showed the first episode of prodigy in the evening didn't they they so did the uk yes. fans got a bit of a, a a glimpse of the of this series didn't they
0: a teaser Caesar yeah. the yes. series
1: yeah I got to watch the first episode and then as we said it, uh, it came on Sky and obviously now it's uh, we've got Paramount Plus over in UK and Europe and uh, got all the Star Trek shows at our uh, fingertips now haven't we
3: yes. yeah it's, isn't it's that good. fabulous for less than a, the it. price of a cup of coffee you can, you too yeah. <laughs> can subscribe to Paramount Plus and have access to every Star Trek ever made
2: well it's nice because <laughs> it's all, all, of the Star Trek, all of the Star Trek is up there you know I think uh, all, all the new shows, all the movies, all the all the old shows.
0: I I think the only ones that aren't up there is Picard. We I assume Amazon has a deal to do the the three series. Oh, for it's so good. long, I, I yeah. guess. But I They'll assume on once that's eventually. yeah, once that's expired, let's be honest, that's going to be brought It'll back be to there. there. It's bound to. And, and the, of course
1: they're doing their um, their own shows as well. Obviously, Halo is on uh, Paramount Plus as well. Um, So there's a a lot of non-Star Trek content on there as well. So hopefully we might get people subscribed to it that aren't massively into all of Star Trek, but once they've got that, they'll get into it a lot more.
3: Yeah, that's the thing about the the Paramount library, people don't necessarily remember. Like Paramount Studios is as old as any of the other ones. They have so many incredible movies that are just at their fingertips, both classic movies and IP that they can create new content on. Yeah, exactly. my favorite show on there besides the star trek content obviously is a show called the offer that is about oh, the making of the godfather which uh, even that... if you're not like a super godfather fan it's just a really fascinating sort of like larger than life uh sort of deep dive into how how film and television is
2: made I just, oh, cool. aaron i just based on your recommendation i just uh, binge watched binge watched the whole thing yesterday isn't it great it's like and, uh, it's it's amazing. really it's really good not i mean because it's like it's it's about making the godfather but it's really about how like the studios operated and like the business of like making movies back in that era and like i, I, th- <laughs> I thought it was really fascinating yeah, and, yeah I, you really know, cool know like they name a lot they name what was on the slate when they were making godfather you know like they were also making chinatown they were also making making these other movies that i love and i was like oh i no, i I didn't even realize those were Paramount movies.
0: I like the fact that you guys who are kind of in the business still like to watch the documentaries about what happens behind the scenes yeah. because <laughs> as, 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 as ordinary people like us, we lo- I, I love that kind of thing, looking behind the scenes at how things was done and, and the, you know, the politics yeah. involved in bringing something from an idea in your mind to, to the screen. And, yeah. Um, well, as someone who works... Hey. As someone who works in the industry,
3: it's always helpful because nobody over here actually knows what we're doing. So we kind of just <laughs> look at what everyone else does, tries to emulate that and hope no one yeah, finds us the, out. I mean, that's, I
2: the, that's the kind of pattern of behavior that like gets you into the industry. I mean, I remember like being in high school and, and trying to seek out all of the different, you know, like any periodical, any book that mentioned any behind the scenes thing or technique, I want, I want to know how the magician does the trick. Yeah, you know, and so all of that information was just fascinating to me. And I would watch it over and over and over and over again. So it's like, that doesn't go away. Once you, you know. start doing it, you just, you know, like you watch, you watch people talk about what they what they're working on in symposiums, and you go, Oh, man, that's how you did that. Okay, I got it. Got it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I think the other the other cool thing about streaming media, of course, uh, streaming platforms, uh, not just Paramount Plus, uh, but um, you get to, for the most part, binge watch things like you just said. So yeah. you know, project is on there, and you don't have to just watch one and think, oh no, I really want to watch the next one. You can actually go right, let's go, pizza. Beer, or if you're, you know, a young child what like what his, have you yeah, one? juice box and, and, and fruit and 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 then um and then and then binge watch the whole thing. The only thing is then you get to the end of the ten episodes, which are fantastic, but then you think, I really want to see what happens next. Know, <laughs> yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> well, that's the
2: problem. That's... There's there's no good place to uh, there's no good place to break it up. But I mean I think after that 10 episode op- that, that tenth episode is very good and I think it's a, it is you know we had in mind right aaron that we, that there would be like a pause in there so i think it's
3: yeah from it, from a writing pers- yeah from a writing perspective we always kind of and this is something we that the hagemans and i brought over from uh sort of the troll hunters and the yeah. tales of arcadia show that we did yeah. produce with guillermo del toro on netflix which was uh, with that uh, show, we had 52 episodes. They just ordered 52 episodes, and they're just like, "Yeah, make a show." And so, so we realized, you know, at the time there wasn't really a rubric for that sort of. Um, that sort of long form cgi animated serialized storytelling yeah. you know we were mostly looking at live action stuff and yeah. in some ways the then somewhat fledgling marvel cinematic universe of like okay how do you how do you create build a bigger story but out of these sort of arcs and so yeah. Yeah. from the beginning we were like i th- we we know we have 20 episodes they've strongly hinted that this is going to keep going so let's assume we at least have 40 episodes to work with and so we were like, all right, let's 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 construct, all right, every 10 episodes, what's what's the arc of these episodes for these characters? You know, Where are they eventually gonna wind up maybe at the end of the series? Where are they gonna wind up at the end of the season? And so we were very regimented and specific in finding those midpoints and those ups and downs and the progression of each character arc, which is a luxury that to my knowledge, I don't think any other Star Trek show has ever had to that degree you know the the most you had was like the 20 26 episode seasons but then to have two seasons that you're kind of able to play with to a certain degree uh we were able to and in a serialized storytelling format it was it it was a really interesting experiment and I'm glad people are picking up on what we've been doing with it yeah no that's good yeah
0: certainly the legacy shows from one series to another Were are we going to get another series is it going to carry on um yeah you know I think Picard, they had said they were going to do three, but I think that was just, we're going to do three, that's all we're going to do, and and, and that's it. And they could yeah. plan a little bit more, and I suppose that's a nice luxury to have. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, you, you, yeah, to, you, Like you say,
1: it, with Voyager, i you know, like seven years, but like Enterprise only had like four or five, didn't it?
2: you know like with the next generation right wasn't it it, it was real like uh, touch and go at first yeah it was the awesome. reason
3: best of both worlds exists as an episode is because they didn't know if if patrick stewart was coming back or not because oh, he was just yeah. like he had had such a sort of uneven experience shall we say and yeah. the show wasn't like a ratings hit yet Uh, and so they were like we have to build this in just in case Riker needs to take over and then then he came back for a third season and like all right well let's unwind that (laughs) i think for the first (laughs) series
0: i think marina surtis always said from the first series she never unpacked a suitcase from the hotel she was in because she never thought it was going to go you know they they, they never knew she just assumed at the end of series one that was it we're going home bye-bye so it was they had a bit more of a difficult time to be fair because obviously they were you know it's they had the ha- half of the people saying this is not the original series. Sure. I mean. Um, I mean. And they had half the people kind of interested to see what is this new show, where is it going to go? Uh, battle that with a juggling old scripts from Phase Two that never happened. Mm-hmm. So it does feel original series for for for, for the most Bit part of the Series wild, One. It? And, and it was all like, what's going to happen? It was just a juggling act, wasn't it? But uh, luckily, and then it in did
1: syndication
3: uh... as well, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. But luckily, right. it, um, it it did well and, and opened the door for everything else, basically, uh, luckily.
3: I know. It's it's so strange to think that here we are, in what I kind of consider a third wave of Star Trek, right? Yeah. You know, because, you know, you had the original series in the movies for a long time and that's all there yeah. was. And then TNG came along and kind of opened up the sort of Rick Berman era and then, and now, then you have the J.J. Abrams films that, that have since sort of given the gateway to discovery, which in turn has allowed for this explosion of Star Trek content. And, yeah. you know, I remember those very dark days circa 2005, you know, when Enterprise got canceled prematurely and yeah. everybody was saying, well, that's it for Star Trek. It was fun while yeah. it lasted. You know, like studios aren't going to touch it for a 10 foot pole. Like maybe you'll get it 30 years from now, but, you know, other, otherwise, you know just uh, it was a nice nice thing that we had for a while and i was so sad because it was such a big part yeah. of my life and now now here we are and it's like a renaissance and and yeah. people are oh, allowed yeah. to experiment with the form in ways that i think uh haven't really been uh done since i guess arguably deep space nine but even no, then yeah. i think they got away with that because the powers that be were kind of focused on voyager and deep space yeah. nine kind of got yeah. was able to do whatever they wanted yeah uh, and they were able to take some of those bold swings and you know truly be inventive or you know a star trek show where they're stuck on a space station and over half the cast aren't in starfleet that's crazy yeah <laughs>
0: I think and the fans as well had a big part in it. They've kept the fires lit, you know, uh, yeah. since since 05 and, and the you know enterprise and, and them. Yeah, absolutely right.
3: Thanks to but, the fans for lighting the, the pyre of Gondor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I yeah. think it, well, it's, I mean, well, well, it's, it's was now, but I think it was out. kind of like franchise
1: fatigue, wasn't it? Was the thing was mentioned at the time.
0: Yeah. Mm.
3: But I, you know, and I think that the new era of streaming in particular, Disney is doing this, now Paramount Plus is doing it, it, of of finding ways to make, give each show its own unique vibe and voice, I think helps stave off that franchise fatigue. And so I I, I will say right off the bat that Paramount Plus has been very generous, uh, at least creatively content wise, uh, towards letting us kind of do our own thing. And you know, give put our own stamp on this show without it feeling it being. They're not coming in and saying, "Can you make this more like Voyager?" Or uh, we don't know about this arc. They're at, they they've been they've given us almost complete carte blanche from both Secret Hideout and Nickelodeon, just to kind of at least content wise. And then the rest of it's yeah. like. How can we actually make this show?
0: Right, right. I, was, I was going to ask. That was going to be one of my questions, actually. Uh, so I've actually got a note here that says continuity, because obviously you, you kind of you kind of sit timeline in between Lower Decks and Picard, and it's like, have you had conversations with with those other shows as to what you might do, might not do? Um, I mean, you've got you, you're kind of looking roughly three years after Lower Decks, but you're, you're sort of sat sixteen years before Picard, so you've got quite a nice air, air space of time to work within there.
3: Yeah
0: um well it- yes actually we you know i i
3: would say would you say patrick you know we have conversations come up at least maybe every month or two and sometimes we'll just have big showrunner round tables where all the showrunners get together and just kind of talk about what they're doing for the seasons but even as we're like breaking episodes we're like oh we really want to you know, focus on this quadrant, or we maybe want to bring in this character or focus, or pull this thread of this storyline from TNG or from Deep Space Nine or Voyager or whatever. And, you know, then Secret High well, oh, actually they were, th- you know, Lower Decks was considering using that. And we'll have a conversation with them. Or Picard was considering doing something with this character. So we'll have a conversation with them. And usually the net result is we kind of talk it out and we're like, oh, there's actually a an opportunity here to, yeah, and then we'll kind of like almost bridge the writers' room from the top down and say this is where the, the, this is how they connect together. This is what we're going to put in this show, so it connects to this show and vice versa. Um, and there's already been some of those uh, in other shows that you'll you'll find out <laughs> are planted there for a reason
2: uh, and there's some, in our and there's show. Some- And there's some stuff we did at the beginning that we just didn't we just didn't know so we were kind of just like uh poking in the dark we ended up modeling a a bunch of uh, legacy characters and stuff we wanted to have on the show and we and, and we couldn't end up doing um but the uh you know like in the end I think it's a combination of of what Aaron's doing with uh you know checking in with the other scripts from the other series but it's also uh I think there's a lot of luck in there that's been very synergistic. Um, it's so, it's so, so, so hard to track. And because of the timelines and because of uh, like the way the TV, the TV series is, are produced. I mean, it takes like, it takes us like, like 18 months from soup to nuts to get from the beginning to the end. So, you know, like if that stuff's already written if that stuff's already uh, like gone into production you know and the same thing is happening with the other series so it's like w- when you're able to get something in there that you know you're making a choice it could be one of two things you're kind of a, it's a 50-50 you know and then it and then it lands and it ends up hooking up with the other series it's just yeah. like it, it's been a real i think it's been a real lucky blessing that like we've had a couple of those that have really really uh, synergized nicely
3: yeah. yeah. And it's, it yeah, is it is absolutely, true. as Patrick is saying, an ongoing process where, you know, if there is something that is introduced, you know, at a later, past the point of no return for some stages uh, yeah. that, that they're like, oh, by the way, we want to, we're doing this or this costume looks like this or whatever, then we'll find some way as best we can, you know, and there's sort of like a hierarchy of like either either if there's time to tweak the the design to make sure it matches we'll do that yeah um you know uh i think that that happened with one character actually yeah we have we have
2: had we also we've had instances where you know we're, we're we're full at work full clip running as fast as we can trying to get this thing out and then you know uh picard season two's trailers the airwaves and that was the first time i had seen them i don't know if it was the first time you'd seen them Aaron but like there was like a day where we got into work and we like uh oh we have to have a meeting because like we picked this thing for this time period and now there's like this thing in the trailer that we need to you know take account (laughs) take accounting of and we gotta go back and we gotta do a bunch of work or we gotta figure out a way to like logic this out you know like in the story so that it makes sense And it's like, so we do get those curveballs all the time where it's where somebody does something tricky in an episode of Picard, and we just didn't know about it ahead of time or something and we see them yeah we go, oh, oh, oh we have to change course <laughs> because because even though at
3: the top level we are kind of planning this stuff out and and you know trying to figure out the the big 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 bolts like it's a big evolving moving behemoth and sometimes those decisions trickle down to like five through five different layers of departments and then uh they'll do a last minute reshoot and they're like all right we're going to do a flashback and then, and then we have to be like well that flashback's in our era <laughs> and so we have to find some right. way to Uh, And sometimes it's like what they used to do on the Rick Berman, you know, shows where there would be something that was that, you know, at, at first might be like, how does this jive with this other episode? And then you'd have a character basically lay it out in a conversation that feels almost like turning to the audience of like, don't worry. We're thinking about this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so like, we're, 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 we are thinking about all of this stuff and we, and it means a lot to us (laughs) uh, to make sure that it does connect as best we can. We We agonize over.
2: Yeah, I uh, Deep, 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 deep fans <laughs> agonize over it, I promise. Yeah, and, every day. So,
3: <laughs> there have been weekends where I've lost sleep the whole weekend, and then the episode comes out, and they're like, oh, that was good. And so like, I, I don't know why <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. so worried. About I was
2: it up, just, over, yeah. Yeah. I've had that, too. I've had that, too.
0: Does it help that you're doing animation rather than live action in order to make these changes quicker, or is that not the case? Is it more work or less work? Or-
3: Gosh, it's a um, question. There, uh, it's. I think it's, a it, good it's. I would say it's about the same amount of work in some regards, but stretched out over a long period of time. And sometimes yeah. it's more work because yeah. animation has so many stages, which Patrick can kind of walk you through. But like, yeah. it's easier to change something at the beginning of the stage than way at the end of the stage.
2: Right. Right. So we try to get we do, we take the scripts and we break down the scripts and then we try to uh, figure out what the assets are going to be. And then it goes into a uh, boarding phase, but because of the timeline, we have to we have to be building things and designing things at the same time as somebody is kind of like blocking out the episode, um, and so uh, those things don't line up a lot of the time. And then we have to play play yeah. catch up with each other to you know somebody somebody put something in the animatic that you know nobody accounted for because it's director's decision, so we've got to build yeah. that stuff. We get these little curveballs, you know somebody in an episode of Picard might be wearing a lapel pin or something like that in a different way. And we'll have to take that into account. Um, so it's, it's really just with the animation, it's more about, uh, it's more about something with the weight of a locomotive, you know, uh, like at speed. And so if anything changes about like lo- locomotive, you know, like it doesn't slow down. It doesn't slow down because somebody runs into the side of it with with a, with a horse or something <laughs> like that. It just keeps moving at the at the speed. So you've got to like get out of the conductor booth, crawl back a couple of cars, fix that hitch, <laughs> and then climb back into the conductor's booth, and 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 make sure every make sure nothing hitched in the process. So yeah, because of the long the long timeline and the wait... Uh, moving at that speed is 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 what makes it so hard. And I figure, I I don't know about the live action, but I I figure the live action is probably just the other edge of the sword, right? It's probably just trickier to assemble an actor at the last minute and get that, st- you know, to change
1: that, yeah. that
2: yeah. last minute shoot that you need to do or to get a, a prop designer to make a prop at the last minute and, and give it to, you know, and, and, oh, wow. and pick up scenes, you know.
3: Yeah, or the old, like, oh, by the way, this location we were counting on turns out it's going to cost us $50,000 extra. Can you just, you've already shot two thirds of the episode. Can you just quickly rewrite the the remaining one third to not have to use that location? Or somewhere that looks similar, it's cheaper. yeah so (laughs) it's it's like crazy or or this actor is refusing to say this these lines come up with something else on the fly that still makes sense in the context of the episode which is thankfully in animation we don't deal with that stuff as much because it is so methodical but that but as patrick was saying if
2: something happens
3: you know late i mean
2: But in some cases we do, because I mean, like uh, one of the things that uh, one of the things that helps them at the episode in the end is I think Aaron Aaron goes through the episode at the very, at the very end of the process. And he knows that, you know, like if, you know, when you watch it in continuity, once it's all, once it's all said and done or basically like fixed, you know, if something doesn't make sense, you're kind of stuck because you can't go back and reanimate, you know, seven scenes. To lead into it and make sure it works, you know. So Aaron has to very cleverly like go in there and be like, "Well, uh, Zero doesn't have a mouth, so we'll give Zero a line. We can change his has- line to whatever we want. <laughs> we <can> change <laughs> his line because there's no lip sync to reanimate. That's or true. if if there's a character that has their back to the camera, or if you know somebody had just moved off scene and we cut and you hear like an off screen, off screen line across two shots, you know. So so Aaron will add like four or five different lines throughout the episode that just kind of like make it flow better and make everything a little more or answer a question that
3: maybe was answered in the longer cut but got trimmed for time and then yeah. for whatever reason it got lost for, through the cracks of like oh we forgot to put that put some so it's and that those tricks by the way are aren't borrowed directly from live action and that's that's usually when a for instance when a film has shot and they don't have any more money for reshoots. You're in the editing yeah. bay and they're like, "Oh gosh, this scene doesn't make sense." You have the you have the actor come back in the A-list actor and do what's called looping yeah. or ADR and they and that's so like a lot of times we'll have live action people that have never not done much or any uh, voiceover and then you'll yeah. have them yeah. do it. And they're like, "Oh, I've done this before," because they they'll sometimes have to lip match their own performance in the yeah. live action. Yeah. Yeah. they've done
0: yeah. a lot on the legacy shows with that i know in in the, in the delta flyers podcast uh, the guys were talking about looping and doing the adr yeah. going in quite regular to do bits and pieces um, of that so what you're saying is basically yeah, it's uh, it's easier than live action. No, I'm joking you know, it, it, does, <laughs> it, it does sound like there's a lot more hard work goes into it than what what normal people would it's think so when so they just so. stick a, a show on.
2: I, I think it's like when you do do live action things, I mean like I've done I've done a little bit of like live action stuff on the side and it's like it's easy to it's easy to get somebody to get you know, you can say, okay, just stand back a little farther. Yeah, wait one extra second go you know okay now wait 2 seconds and do it go you know and to do that and to iterate that way is, is much faster and you also have a human being that is you know like a trained professional that knows how to bring things to this role so they're thinking you're thinking everything is collaborative you know with the animation you're you're putting a dummy in yeah. space and then yeah. you and then you're requiring every movement and every articulation, every every uh, t- uh, twitch in the face, everything that you're doing on screen has to be uh, like mechanized by somebody, uh, which yeah. is, you know, like you might get like, if like Jack Nicholson is like shooting, he might like wince in a certain way that makes the scene the way that the scene is and that yeah. the way that everybody will remember it or the way That's he approaches true. it, you know, but like with this dummy that you're playing with in animation. Thank you, you have, to, uh, you have to think of everything. And the, I mean, that, that's, the, that's the play and that's the fun is to see how close you can get to that barrier of that realism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we do a really, really good job. I think the show is unique in, uh, in, its, in its facial performance and it, its ability to get those long lens film cameras right in the face of the, uh, of, of the main characters. And get yeah. you know like the movements in their eyes, and get like the nuances of their cheeks, and get and get the line read for these like special emotional moments that are like really really particular and important to Star Trek.
1: Yeah, I was going to start to you with the animation, the the three D animation element. Is that new to Star Trek: Prodigy, or is that something that you've used in animated shows previously? Well, for... Patrick,
3: Patrick could probably speak to that. <laughs> For what is that? Sorry, can you, the, can you
1: the, the 3D animation um that's used in Prodigy is that is that kind of a, a new method um for Prodigy or has it been used in previous shows?
2: Um so the pipeline that we're doing has been like under construction for a long, long time. Um it, this it, like I obviously like CG animation is is new to Prodigy like within the series and stuff like that. But we've been doing uh, CG shows at Nickelodeon since uh, 2007, I believe. Um, Maybe even before, but not with like a constructed department. So we've had, you know, we've we've, we've had uh, maybe 15, uh, I'll get the number wrong, so I'm hesitant to say the it's number. Been, they've been practice. doing it for a while, but in-house, I think they've time. been at it for a while. Yeah, and so the last big thing that we did was uh, in 2012, we did uh, a reboot of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. When, uh, of course, or, yeah. Yeah, when we bought the property, um, and so that was that was really successful, but that was using technology back from, like, 2010 to 2012, Um, And after, after Turtles, um, we had spent so much time in a pipeline that was, that was old, you know, because like once, once you bury the hatchet, like at uh, 2012 technology, if it's 2018 and you're still making the show, you're still making the show with 2012 technology. You can upgrade some things along the way, but you don't really have like a a huge opportunity to. so we were able to play around with uh, with with new rendering techniques, new technologies, and new pipelines. Uh, we made uh, a show for the movie Wonder Park that that oh. never that it never reached the air because of um, for for whatever reason. Um, and we made a couple of TV movies and and uh, things along belong those lines. And so uh, we built a pipeline that, that nobody else really uses. We're using a lot of video game techniques and we're using uh, GPU rendering, which means that the rendering is happening on the video card and not on the on the main processor, which allows yeah. us to, to iterate faster and to render faster and to get that look that you see in Star Trek, which I think is a very uh, closer to a photo reel version of, you know, the cartoon medium that you've seen in other things, but yeah. that they just can't really achieve with the budget and the time that they have. And so that's, that's where I think our success is. And then, I mean, where I thought that line was gonna be when we started, then where that line got to you know when we're when we're at a full clip the way that we're working in production right now it's just like we we blew past the barrier that I thought we would have <laughs> so long ago. And every episode we're doing every episode we're doing these things that I just didn't think would ever be possible. You know, and we've got a great team and we've got uh brilliant, passionate people that are that are infested in the property and our and our fans and love it. And I think that's what you're seeing on the screen. If we, if everybody on step didn't love, absolutely love what they were doing, they would break. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, because of, because of what we're doing within our boundaries. And mm-hmm. um, I'm just, I'm just really proud of everybody on the team because I think that, I think that the show is, it's absolutely the best thing I've ever worked on. It's the best looking thing. It's the best story I've ever worked. It's, you know, like it's, it, it fires on all cylinders. Yeah, yeah I think I,
1: one I, of the exciting things for, for me has been that um, as uh, Paul said a while ago, we spoke to uh, Garrett Wang um, a few months ago mm-hmm. uh, about um, Star Trek Voyager and we were saying it was a shame it didn't get the feature movies and we didn't get to see the sort of return to Earth and what the technology coming back from the Delta Quadrant and the science would, would lead to. But with Star Trek Prodigy and with certain elements in the end of Picard as well we're actually getting to see that so we're seeing what's happening with what happened with Janeway what happened with Chicote, and you know this technology maybe some of that being brought into development approach stuff
2: yeah 100 percent uh like uh, that was I, go ahead I, I was just gonna say I think it's I think it's really important too that um we're we're doing something that's a little different because there are some there's some shows that are going there are some shows not star trek shows but some shows that are going back and, and retconning some old uh, content you know sci-fi content that people love and yeah. and they're like part of the original part of the original lore and love comes from the mystery and so i i i think it's really important to to Make clear that like what's been nice is that we're not trying to we're not trying to fill in blanks, that, right. You know uh, that that tell people like how things went down or or what happened in the interim while they've been away or you know we're not trying to like uh, like smooth out any mystery. We're 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 really just creating new story, you know, like in the gaps, like you're saying. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. But but even you know to to your your point. David was was uh, you know, so in the writer's room at least, we, I remember the first three or four weeks when we just were like, okay, what is the setting here? You know, we we thought very heavily, like, okay, what are some new things that we could bring in to the franchise? Because obviously, it's right there in the mandate: new worlds and new civilizations. You know, new science fiction concepts, new science sci-fi technologies. That kind of, you know, because we wouldn't have cell phones if it weren't for communicators. You know, like we wouldn't have iPads if it weren't for uh, pads. For the (laughs) (laughs) pads. So, like, you know. We were like, what? We were thinking, like, okay, where did the the sort of the the, the cursor end? Stop moving, and like, what, what would that look like six years later? And as we kind of talked through, you know, how truly revolutionary uh, Voyager's return would be, because that the whole premise of that of that uh, show was, okay, we are seventy thousand light years away from from Earth. Uh, and our current even 20, uh, 24th century technology is uh, unable to get there short uh, shorter than 70 years. And so like the whole premise of the show is how can we find new technology and new ways to basically break our even the Federation's understanding of science and yeah. warp speed limitations uh, in order to get home faster. And the, of course the whole show is them collecting all of this incredible technology and so, you know, that would be comp- absolutely game changing to the Federation, whose very foundation is built on exploration and pushing yeah, out to yeah. those new boundaries. So if you bring, you know, everything they know about Borg Transwarp, you know, er- you know, uh, everything that they have that they found in like, uh, you know, Enhanced warp drive, or coaxial drive, or slipstream, slipstream, slingshots, slingshots, slingshots yeah, <laughs> space—it goes on. And on, and yeah, on. Yeah. Like it's—it all of it is utterly uh, sea-changing. Yeah. Um, and so like we were like well let's look at what those early days are like imagine if somebody just you know came, came came back from mars and said oh we found an alien civilization here here's a bunch of technology and they've studied it you have a, a, the federation which is effectively trillions of scientists whose job it is you know like all their needs are taken care of so all they do is just sit around and do science all day like they and i would imagine they would start to piece together some cool stuff for them that would allow them to to, you know maybe miniaturize industrial replicators which already existed on deep space nine but like oh what if they did that and use it to build shuttles on the fly because yeah as we know voyager had a shuttle problem um
0: <laughs> no. And, <laughs> no
3: no uh, and, how many or, shuttles
0: did they have <laughs> <laughs>
3: they had at least <laughs> several sacagaweas i think um, <laughs> Yeah, so, but, you know, that that was part of the real fun in the early days process was just like, well, where is the Federation now? Because, you know, the fun of Star Trek isn't just, it's always exactly the same as it was 20 years ago. It's it's like, oh, how have things changed? What are new technologies, new alien races, new civilizations? Yeah, yeah. And how are those, rather than, you know, fundamentally altering everything that you know and love, but rather enhancing it and expanding that purview of what what Star Trek and what the Federation is? And that was that became sort of like the undercurrent of, of our, our exploration of that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah and
1: I, th- I think the genius of the, the show as well is obviously it's predominantly um, aimed at children, younger adults, um, and it's a great jumping point for them. Even if they have no knowledge of Star Trek, they can easily relate to the characters who are learning as they're going through the show as the kids watching it are. But also the adults that have grown up with Star Trek, there is some familiarity in there as well, um, so adults can enjoy it and watch it as well. Uh, you say, so you say adults, think, uh,
0: Dave, but really it's yeah. just big kids because uh, I absolutely love kids, the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. To be honest, uh, yeah. Well, and, it's yeah, funny. I, you... I'm being taught by Holloway, H- H- Hologram Janeway as I'm watching it, which, which <laughs> I guess was the intention. Um, yeah. Uh, to bring Ab- that.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and like you know. The and in terms of that tone stuff, the mandate that the Hagemans and I always shared was, we want to make shows that we would enjoy watching too, and it harkens back to, uh, you know, uh, I grew up, I was an '80s kid, '80s, and so like, and the the Hagemans were too to a certain degree. Um, and so there's this sort of from that era, 80s, early 90s, there's this idea of four quadrant storytelling, no pun intended for Star Trek fans. Uh, but <laughs> the four quadrant is, is male, female, young, and old, meaning like it yeah. appeals to everyone. And that's, Why that's where you have movies like E.T. or Jurassic Park or Indiana Jones, where everybody goes in with different expectations and different wants. Uh, And they come out of it satisfied and it becomes a, what's called a co-viewing experience that everybody can watch it and say, wow, what a great formative story. And, you know, for me, that, that, that was Star Trek to a certain degree. Like one of my earliest memories was watching, the the premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation back in September of 1987 with my dad on the couch. And I had no idea what I was watching, but I knew it was very exciting and I was feeding off my dad's energy and we both got something out of it because I was like, oh, cool, pew, pew spaceships. And my dad was like, oh my God, Enterprise is back. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right.
0: Your Venn diagram is basically just put a big circle around all of it. That's, uh, that's
3: yeah, basically. And a... <laughs> you know, it's been very nice to see like tweets and messages from fans saying, "Finally, there's a Star Trek uh, that that my kids can get into, and also my yeah. dad can get into." And so we have like three generations of Trekkies in the making, all watching it together. And that, yeah, was what our, and that was sort of like our mandate for the beginning of this show is like, you know, for better or for worse, you know, television and the aesthetic of television has shifted. We're now in sort of a golden age peak TV where every show, episode is expected to a certain degree to be like a movie or this sort of grand yeah. epic yeah. story. And we're like, how can we infuse the Star Trek element of that in, into this? Um, and so we can catch the kid's eyes. And, and but also, you know, Before this, it was so hard to to tell a kid like because I'd have people say, "Where do I start watching Star Trek?" And I'm like, "I don't know. Watch like a hundred episodes, and you'll kind of get the swing. (laughs)
0: You'll get there. Yeah, I I have tried it. But whereas someone said, "I need to get into Star Trek," and it's like, "Okay, pick this episode because I thought it was a good one." It's like that was boring. well, Pink that's deception. the thing. Is like, <laughs> and even the movies, which I think are a decent place to jump
3: in, they're not. I don't. I don't know if you'll get as much out of them if you don't have the context of no, those characters no, no. And, and that world. So that's that was kind of a mandate. of like, let's just
2: yeah. for
3: the for the sake of it, let's try it. Come in. Come in with like a, a tabula rasa of like, what if there are these these you know teenage aliens that are outside Federation space that have have very little exposure to it and and the whole point is like they're your entry point into the world yeah. and the, a lot of things that you that i think most trek fans to absolutely take for granted like universal translators or transporters stuff that, like kids might not immediately understand uh you know and there aren't that many like universal translator episodes for instance uh, you know there's a few notably great ones like Darmok or or yeah. what have you but um, but even then they they don't really get into the principles of how they work, what the range is this, mm-hmm. that. So we yeah. were like what if we start in a place where there is no universal translator by design And then yeah. they and then you see the wonder of what the ability to communicate with someone yeah. else that is different than you Which and I think is Star Trek to the T
1: Yeah, that especially comes into its uh, own in the uh, episode of the ship it comes back into Tars Lamora and they have the universal translators, and all the mining workers can actually talk to each other for the first time, and actually, you know, get together and mount a resistance, and know what they all stand for.
3: Yeah, that was absolutely by intention. I think that yeah. when we were breaking out the first ten, ten episodes, we were it was like, what is what is about communication that allows it, it allows you to broaden your horizons in both the literal and figurative sense um and it allows you to work together and that's what star trek is it's the story of the many over the one
1: then you then you see the other side of it as well don't you with the uh, the vol cat on solemn um where the prime directive goes well awry and it has a very negative impact on that planet and that civilization
3: it's true although i think i don't think this is a spoiler you're going to find out a little bit more about the nature of that and how yeah you know no 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 man is an island and uh, how do I say yeah. that uh, civilizations I guess you know are they have differing opinions right and so yeah. as we know in it was revealed in the first 10 episodes it was a civil war where half were like yeah. hey actually this federation sounds pretty good right and then the other half were the, the sort of the xenophobic like no we're the yeah. we're the best this is earth shattering it's Galileo getting put on trial for se- daring to say that the earth revolves around the sun yeah, uh, yeah. I mean you
1: has been at the moment we've just got the diviner's perspective of it haven't we and then that is all we've got to go off and like you say the full story's not been unraveled yet
0: yeah for sure it's nice to explore that actually because even in in sort of legacy track you see episodes where they'll go and do first first contact and it sometimes works and sometimes doesn't um and they're told to basically sling the rock and go away well what happens when they leave there's still going to be all those conversations happening um why didn't we shouldn't we it would have been better or not so, yeah yeah
3: and so. you know and i think that that's always going to be an evergreen topic because for better or for worse the world is becoming a smaller place and we all have to learn how to coexist in some way even if it's difficult yeah. and that, that's really what star trek's been about
1: yeah I and mean, it's based on the whole uh white europeans going into the americas isn't it in, in like 14th 15th century and The disaster that uh, that became is almost based a little bit on that, isn't it, where one civilization comes into contact with the other and it can either live together in harmony and both improves each other and they thrive or they destroy each other or one ends up falling away
3: yeah to a certain degree i would i the difference i think being that that the federation it, it, are aren't really sort of like a colonial no. um, sort of no. conquering group um but uh, but no that that certain idea is like well if you if you aren't colonizing and forcing your ideas on others, how do you kind of find a common ground and I think that's. We're still figuring that out as 21st century citizens.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, well, that's well, usually,
2: but... in Star Trek, that's usually, like, the, the gambit. That's usually, they, you know, like, the the proof that they have to put out, right? is usually, yeah. we, the the society is very skeptical that they're not colonizers, that they're not going to change their, you know, their way of life and their way of thinking, and, and the Federation always kind of has to prove that they're, you know, they're benevolent, and if you want to be a part of this, it's cool, but... <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Let's uh, take a slight segue because we're going to bring on our first feature, which is always very exciting, which is called Geeky Guys Favourites. Now, on our normal podcast series, me and Dave would ask each other what our favourite of a, a, of a particular thing is, just randomly, just silly bits and pieces. Uh, <laughs> when we have guests, we like to uh, ask you guys uh, instead. Um, I've got a card here in front of me with five things on, so I'm just going to get one of you to just throw a number out between one and five. Uh, four. Four. Oh, this is a nice, easy one. Actually, we'll do the same question for both of you. So, this is simply: What's your favorite Star Trek character that's not from your show? You can't, oh, you can't, you can't cheat and pinch one from your show. Um, <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's a tricky one, Patrick. Do you want to go first? I have a
2: couple in my head. Um, I I don't want to go first. Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's it's so hard. I mean, I think I, for me, fundamentally, my favorite character always was was Captain Picard you know cuz i think um, you know not only does he he changes he changes from season to season drastically and he changes with the people that he comes in contact with and he changes with with his crew you know and it goes from kind of like a like a military operation almost you know in that first season to you know being being his best friends in that last episode, you know, when he sits down to play cards with them. Um, But I think that that um, that strong figure of uh, authority and morality uh, was was very, very important, you know, to get into to get into plots where uh, there was an uh, there's an obvious there's an obvious easy way out and there's, there's the hard and the right way. Um, and differentiating, the, diff- differentiating those and uh, making sense of those to an audience uh, in a way that leaves them walking away from the episode, uh, thinking about the moral questions that they have to face on a, on a day-to-day basis, uh, thinking about their interactions with their family, with their loved ones, thinking about the way that they are participating or not participating in society for the better or for the worse of the collective good, um, and his embodiment of those ideals was really, I think, at a time where you know, like Aaron was saying in nineteen in nineteen eighty seven, um, you know, as somebody that was a preteen, that was coming coming out of a world that you know like when you're a child you're sheltered and and uh, and you're coming into uh the realization of what what life really is and what choices really mean uh to get that character and to be able to look up to that person and uh learn from learn from that uh and 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 take those lessons away into your life i think was probably one of the most uh like solidly foundational things yeah. um absolutely. that i had growing up so he's absolutely i know it's kind of a cop out just like captain picard's my favorite but like that is he is absolutely my favorite for those reasons. no i mean
0: it's not a cop out when you were saying that three lines spring to mind in my head which was uh jeremy on the starship enterprise nobody is alone which uh with the young child jeremy and you say is mellowed a little bit towards children as he goes through the series um and that sense of family you've got the the drumhead court uh episode and uh measure of a man so uh they, they jumped to my head when you were talking there yeah. about the, and to, doing the right
2: thing. to say that yeah to say things like you know you can still you can still do everything correctly yeah but ultimately lose and that's that's life yeah that's not failure yeah. you know it's it's things like that but you know or uh, become contra, uh become constant mantras yeah. in your life you know you think back to them when things when things get harder when yeah. when things go sideways you rely on those those yeah. rules and those ideals
0: that is not yeah, failure definitely. that is life i think it was the was the line that's yeah
3: yeah or even measure of a man where it's like you know our 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 uh, mantra is to seek out new life while well, oh, there, there it, it yeah you know? <laughs> and it's and you know it's that sort of challenge to even those yeah. it's a little bit people who might think they're open-minded but then they don't realize they have these sort of limitations it's like no you can't just draw arbitrary boundaries that exclude people and the other you know you have to yeah. reconsider everything uh, if you truly want to seek what where the truth lies.
2: Um, and, and the, and the idea that like there's bias in there and that if we can just, if we can just look at the information and if we can just talk about what we agree about and talk about the things we disagree about and come to a better understanding of who the two of us are, you know, that, that we come out, you know, both better people in the end, you know. Yeah, for sure.
0: Aaron, you're not off the hook. Your favorite character.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I could go through each series and talk about my favorite character, but but, I mean, uh, if I had to choose, I would say it's probably a three-way tie, and they're all from Deep Space Nine, um, and and it's uh, Odo, Quark, and Garrick are my three favorites. And the reason is, and I have a reasoning, which is, you know, I think that they... Kind of in many ways represent the the story of all of uh, of Star Trek, where it's like people their mind they are kind of reflecting of the outsiders looking in of uh, you know. And I, I always think back to that conversation you have between like Quark and Garrick, where they're try, trying root beer. You know the Earth the uh, Earthlings uh, drink it. It's cloyingly sweet, it's, and he's like, "It's <laughs> oh, disgusting." And he's like, "And you know what? And you know what the worst part of it is? The more you drink it." the more you start to like it. (laughs) And then then Garrick is like, it's insidious. (laughs) Um, And that sort of, um, I guess, lens in which we humans can kind of be able to view ourselves and our quirks and our peccadilloes. You know, it, it really is... Star Trek writ large, because that's all Star Trek is—is is us just challenging our assumptions about ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in this case, in in most cases, it's by venturing out into those strange and civilizations. But in this case, it's having those sort of a- aliens who are forced uh, thrust into this sort of melting pot on Deep yeah. Space Nine. And, you know, even between them, they have very, very different differing opinions of how life should be, you know, obviously, Quark is the er space capitalist, and Odo is this sort of the law, law and order man, but he actually doesn't really, uh, he's, a, he's an interesting sort of security officer in that he, he, ser- before the Federation, he served, you know, um, with the Cardassians, and yeah. he was just sort of like, I'm just trying to He's very sort of uh, pragmatic, where he's like, "I'm just trying to, you know, bring justice as best I can within the system I'm presented." And then, and then it's over the course of the series that he he kind of expands and realizes that's not good enough, and he has to actually stand for something. And and yeah. when he eventually winds up being the savior, and arguably the savior of the Federation by going, you know, to the Dominion and basically uh, brokering a, a peace uh, with them. Uh, by and sort of sacrificing himself in some ways to do so, or at least his life with on aboard Deep Space Nine with with Kira and the future therein. Um, and Garrick, of course, is the, is exactly the same. He's sort of like this weird, chaotic, neutral cipher of a character, who you know you think is just sort of a, a, when he's introduced, everyone's like, oh yeah, he's a spy. <laughs> like, everyone, <Yep>. Nobody. Everyone's <laughs> like, don't trust Honestly, him. Spy. <laughs> Don't trust him. He's a bad person. And then by the end of it, you know, he's uh, yeah, he, he's bringing a moral gray area, I think, uh, of like the, the the concept of the greater good, especially in episodes where, you know, he's faking, faking stuff and killing people in order to bring the Romulus into the Federation. Well,
2: but by the end, uh, he's oh throwing yeah, his think lot think in. He was like, he's, it's basically he's the tailor of Panama, right? Like he's, yeah. he's, he's just he's, a spy on the ground. Yeah. yeah,
3: and his his perspective is I would rather stare at the truth of the world, warts and all, and and still try to make it a better place on it, on those terms than mm-hmm. live purely in that ideal. Uh, but I think that what's interesting is I think even Garrick by the end of the series is like uh, he you can I, he's clearly fighting for. St- Starfleet like he's he's doing yeah. he's doing everything he can as best as in the only ways he knows how in order to preserve the Federation and what it stands for even if he
0: doesn't totally believe that it's achieved that, that utopia is achievable in real yeah. terms he, he almost becomes that lovable rogue in the end doesn't he really where it's sort of yes. he's done bad things and he knows he has but it's kind of nice with the Federation around because he can kind of get away with a lot more because he's a bit right, sneaky. Right. Right. Uh, right. I think my, my favorite line from Garrick is at um, uh, the end of the story where they talk about uh, the wolf in sheep's clothing and he says uh, the doctor so and he says well, what's the moral of the story and the doctor uh, uh, doctors like well, never if you keep telling lies no one will believe you and he's like are you sure that's the moral doctor and he's doctor Dr, Bish- <laughs> Dr. Bish- says well, what else could it possibly be and he just looks at him and, and you get this lovely close-up as he looks at the camera and says never tell the same lie twice and it's just <laughs> brilliant I love that line.
3: Yeah, but they I love that they all kind of just challenge some assumptions we have about the Boy Scout Goody yeah. Two Shoes Starfleet. Yeah. But in the end they even they're like, well, perhaps if we just sort of expand our vision a little bit of of what that umbrella can can tolerate and maybe we can e- even we can learn something from the Ferengi and the Ferengi can learn something from us. You know, yeah, I think yeah. that the, that sort of idea of like, you know, if if you if your worldview winds up excluding people, then perhaps there's a way that you both can expand your world worldview. I think that you know is a really wonderful message in any story you tell.
0: Speaking of messages in stories, I did want to just mention. So, going back to prodigy for a second. Um... It, it, it was it was it's quite clear that there's there's a moral of the story uh, running through the episodes or at least it seems like that as a casual viewer so um, uh, the shows certainly promote this the idea of working together and trusting each other uh, and they come through uh, I suppose I suppose they would naturally if you've got a group of people who aren't used to doing that but was, was that something you purposely designed in as something that would children would would, would get and hold on to and take with them?
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, I, uh, from the beginning in the writer's room, we were like, what, what are the core tenets of the Federation? And it is just a bunch of disparate member worlds seeing that there is a greater possibility and a better future, a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel if we work together and find common interests and goals while also celebrating our, our diversity and our differences. You know, and I, I, I see, viewing those as strengths uh, rather than things that need to be sanded off Yeah, Um, And, you know, I think that those are very relatable terms to any child, you know, when they, as Patrick was alluding to earlier, as you, uh, you know, when you, as you go from elementary school to middle school and suddenly uh, all your friends start finding different interests or you're not in the same classes as them. And there's all these different people you've never met before that might have wildly different uh, sort of backgrounds or points of views or interests than you you know, uh, you find your own family. And I think that's that idea of a found family of like, you know, even if you don't have someone at home, you know, that, that could support yeah. you, you can always find those support systems out there if you're willing to sort of open yourself up to them. And that uh, for, the, for the characters in particular, you know, we I think we wanted, in order to highlight what the Federation provides, you know, in terms of a post-scarcity utopia, Um, we wanted to start with people that didn't have that they didn't have a family at home they didn't have uh, a society or or um, you know a familial unit of of sorts Uh, so they were all kind of just trying to survive and we talked a lot about the in sort of child psychology there's this idea called the maslow's hierarchy
0: of needs hierarchy of needs yeah
3: yeah. And so we were like, well, obviously the Federation kind of provides all that so that they can yeah. kind of self-actualize and and their biggest concern is, you know, all right, what am I going to dedicate my intellectual pursuits to today? <laughs> uh, whereas, you know, there's a lot of kids out there. In our world, unfortunately, but also I would argue in in the greater Milky Way galaxy in the four quadrants that haven't been exposed to the the things that the Federation provides, and so we wanted to start with like, well, how how do you um, how do you find your own way? And and for the Federation, in my opinion, it's like everyone is unmolded clay, and you yeah. if if you're provided those opportunities, you can become your best self. And yeah. we wanted, that's something we wanted first for them to find in each other and then in the greater ideals that Starfleet represents.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of teaching uh, kids the old thing as well, that it doesn't matter if you're different. It doesn't matter if you think a different way to you, what you would class as like the normal crowd, if you don't feel that you fit in. Um it's really good in the show that it kind of does show that, that their strengths do come out in unexpected ways and they start forming respect for each other. And, oh, they're actually good at doing that. They can do that. Oh, actually, fit into that, they can do that. Um, and it's just really nice. Um, and like you say, they're all kind of these disparate characters with, you know, not there's not a lot known about them, really, about their past. And Dal doesn't even know what his, what his origin is, who his parents are, what his home world is um and it's it's kind of the discovery of of all of that and you're taking their children along with them and learning lessons along the way
0: yeah absolutely yeah i think if anything it shows you that um it's better to have a diverse group of people working together Mm. uh, if anything um yeah because you bring your own um individual differences together to make uh, a better whole Mm-hmm. It's
3: true. And you never know what what when you'll come across a, a situation where if all of you had the exact same background and experiences and training and abilities, you know you might be SOL <laughs> because, yeah. because you you don't have that certain ability or thought or point of view to kind of look at things in a different way um, and find the solution.
2: The characters too are very like cleverly designed to, to sit in all of those pockets too. I mean, there are times where I'm watching the episodes and I think to myself like, oh, maybe I'm a little like Jenga Park. Oh, maybe I'm a little like Rock. And it's funny to see, you know, what character you identify with and when you yeah. identify with them because they're all so different and their backgrounds are so different and their thinking is so different and the way they respond to situations is so different um so it's it's a really nice mirror to have so many different different entities like working together
0: it would be interesting eventually to do one of those online quizzes where you you sort of answer a series of questions you are most like this person uh that would be interesting to do the the project one unless unless you cheat like i do so when i do the doctor who ones i try and answer them so i get david Tennant every time but but that's just me i don't know
3: Yeah, I sometimes think, yeah. there's questions that are very like telling. Like,
0: yeah. <laughs> do you like long coats, short coats, waistcoats, <laughs> oh, long coats? coats.
3: <laughs> what's your What's your opinion of scarves? The
0: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> longer the better. <laughs> Tom Baker. Um, yeah, that uh, that would be interesting <laughs> to to do. Um, we're going to uh, we're going to jump uh, into our second um, our second feature, which is okay. uh, we call Geeky Guys. Did you know? Now, normally, me and Dave again, we we. We try and out trivia at each other with a few bits of trivia. We're certainly not going to be be able to do that with you guys. Uh, but um, uh, we obviously uh, did did mention to you previously that maybe you could bring a piece of trivia maybe about Prodigy that maybe we didn't know, um, a little tidbit that, that doesn't give anything away. Um, I know that uh, we've, we've got a couple of bits of trivia, but uh, a little bit. So, Dave, do you want to jump off with yours? Yours is a general Star Trek one, I think, actually, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So apparently in the, uh, the beginning of the original series, um, Leonard Des Moines, um Spock, um, obviously he ends with, uh, with greenish sort of lemon skin, but apparently it was orig- originally meant to be red. So apparently Spock was supposed to be originally red skinned, but because a lot of people still didn't have color televisions, he would have shown up very dark in black and white. Um, So that's why they ended up going for the more greeny, yellowy type of color.
3: Yeah, I think he also the design originally. I I might be making this up, but I feel like it had he had other stuff too, like a tail or something, and like yeah, they, they added some really crazy stuff. I'm so
0: glad you said that because in our me and Dave had a meeting before before you guys came on today, and uh, one of the things when we we're talking about trivia and we said that I said to Dave, I think I thought Spock's ears were slightly more devilish, or there was something devilish about him. Yeah, it he looked it. like yeah. he basically it, looked
3: it, like it, a it space was, devil. It yeah. <laughs> so so
0: yeah, I think if we both get that right, then it must be true. It's got to be. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um my, my trivia was was going to be about the 3d computer generated stuff that you're doing now which is obviously a first for star trek which we've already kind of said uh so 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 that, that's that gone um so uh, i'll just quite quickly pick one out of my mind which was uh the original shooting model of the enterprise nx01 from the original series i believe was only painted on one side because it was held onto it on a stick and they just they, they did that so you, because it was only ever filmed from one side so when they actually took it away and put it in, in, in a museum they had to like repaint all of it so it looked the same because it was only repainted on one side i think that's true but uh being as it was just out my head uh, it might be completely rubbish you might but have trimmed it we'll get letters <laughs> dave we'll get letters
2: <sighs> I, I do know actually thing. oh sorry yeah, go
3: ahead yeah i was just to say well just speaking of that specific model apparently uh, that that was sitting in Gene Roddenberry's office for several years, but then afterwards it disappeared and no one knows where it went. Like, because I think the Enterprise wanted to like, uh, or the the Smithsonian wanted to put it on display, and they, they went do to the, the,
0: have one now. So I don't know whether they found they, it.
3: I think they I think they might have had either like a later model, right, or, or something, or it might have been from one of the movies, or I can't remember. There was like. But the, there there is like two models that they use. Right. And like the very first one that they used for like the first couple seasons uh, disappeared and, and the Ronberry Estate couldn't find it. Uh,
0: and then, I did like, we not know that. Started. I like that. I know the Smithsonian had one of them, and it is the NXO1 and its so constitutional. That, so
2: that's the one that I was that's what I was gonna bring up before uh, before Aaron was that the Smithsonian had the uh, had one of the the originals from the original series. And it was in the gift shop of the Smithsonian. Yes. Nobody thought about like the historical importance of it. They had just like parked it in the gift shop. And like I'm from Washington D.C., so I grew up like seeing this thing in the gift shop at the Air and Space Museum. Um, and I think it wasn't until very recently that they took it out and they restored it and they put it, you know, in a glass case and made an exhibit around it. Yeah, it was, it was right. out
0: for a good year where they, they restored yeah. it uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah. yeah, I
1: saw a video of that where they showed you them repairing it and all, all mm-hmm. the wear and tear on it was uh, quite horrendous it bars. They had to do a lot of work to make it look display uh, material again.
0: You don't yeah. realize how big these things are. When when the, uh, do, 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 not Sotheby's, when is it Sotheby's that did the big auction? For all the star trek stuff dave uh, in, in in the uk May they, they really did a big about- auction and, and everything got auctioned off including the shooting model of the enterprise d from series one and two and it's the big six foot model and it's massive they brought it out in a crate and it was like the, the saucer section it's like this
3: so But where did where did that wind up i wonder it
0: went to auction and someone bid on it and paid half a million dollars for it
3: so it's just some some guy's
0: garage has Some, the some guy, so guys. half a million right, i now. hope they've got it and looking after it
2: now, <laughs> yeah now. There are pictures, Aaron, of like, there, you know, like, pe- there are these, there were a couple of these things, you know? So there is like, there are pictures of one that's been dismantled and it's like in somebody's garage and then yeah. taken it Yeah, out there was a four up foot up model there. and
0: a six foot model. Yeah, the yeah. four foot model they introduced later on because of 10 forward, I think, and, and, and things they used them later on. I don't know what happened to that one, but I know one of this, I know the six foot model went on to auction and um, it was, yeah, half a million was the most expensive yeah. item in the auction. Um I yeah, Yo, there was some more trivia there we go i found some more trivia i think
3: yeah i think the enterprise i was thinking it was maybe the prototype like the very first right like, this is what it could look like it was in gene's office right and that yeah of i'll look it up later or i'll get tweets saying you're completely wrong,
0: very wrong. <laughs> um so yeah actually we, we need your trivia that's it that was that's what we're, well, yes. we're done dave uh so yeah is there any bits of uh interesting little bits of trivia maybe about prodigy you could give us or
3: yeah, I, there's a couple, uh, you know, one that springs to mind is uh obviously in in Star Trek Prodigy we introduce sort of like a new uh, enhanced warp drive that uh, that uses a a protostar as sort of like a power source and that in that the inspiration for that sort of comes from several places but uh in one case there is the matter of um the Romulans ships are notoriously powered by sort of singularities so basically like collapsed stars as their engine stores uh so we thought wouldn't be interesting if like as kind of this detente is happening you know post uh nemesis that maybe you know some of that technology is they're allowing them to experiment and that's where the protostar came from the other thing was in in the episode uh um what is it the the omega factor they make a
0: yeah. protocol yeah, they make a, factor. They they make 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 a factor. factor i think it's called yeah make, yeah, it's a a... Yeah.
3: yeah um in voyager uh, offhandedly there is a, a a line that was brought up in the first week of like you know what is the nature of the protostar why is it why is it called the protostar and we, and we came up with this idea of the, this engine um was uh the in th- there's a, a throwaway line in in that episode where uh, they're trying to figure out like what what Omega is and um, Harry Kim and as they're kind of like why is Captain Kim yet so classified? It's like I heard she's planning to detonate a Type Six protostar, which could open a wormhole back to the Alpha Quadrant. Uh, uh. In theory, it's possible, and cool. and that was brought up uh, week one by I believe Shauna Benson, one of our writers, uh, and we were like, yep. That's what, that's what they did because that was our, clearly, that was already like a theoretical possibility in Starfleet yeah. technology. And so they are like, what if we mash that in with whatever missing pieces in the equation w- was some buried in the, all the amazing technology they brought back from the Delta Quadrant. And so it was just like, you know, this means uh-huh. chocolate meets peanut butter. Um, the other fun sort of, I guess, technology trivia thing I had for the, the inner workings of the Protostar, was uh, in episode 10, I think it's 10, or it might be episode 9, um, they they steal the the, pro, the protodrive, which you know, if you hear yeah. if you listen carefully, the computer identifies it as the um, exotic matter dilithium matrix missing. And, uh, and, yeah, and yeah. Ex, exotic matter is a key component. Uh, in a hypothetical uh, drive called the Alcubierre drive, which is a uh, yeah. which is a theoretical physics answer to how we could actually create warp drive. So it was like a fun little nod there because exotic matter is obviously matter that, has yet to be discovered, but is capable of exotic properties, like for instance, negative mass, which is required in order to bend space-time in such a way that you could go faster than the speed of light. So it's a fun little sci-fi actual theoretical physics, Easter egg, exotic matter dilithium matrix. And the dilithium matrix was already a component in Star Trek universe that has been firmly established that if it's damaged or goes offline, uh, the the warp core no longer functions. So that's why when they take ta- that component out, the ship is dead in the water.
1: It's dead. Uh, cool. oh, I, I did hear going back to the uh, the Omega Protocol, um, a few months back that there was the question of why seven of, seven of nine has never been uh, allowed in the captain's chair or allowed into Starfleet after they've got back to Earth after traveling back from the Delta Quadrant. And one of the reasons that somebody stated why it might be is that because she's got that information about the Omeda protocol from being in the hive mind with the Borg.
3: Could be. Yeah. And the information
1: was there perhaps from Picard, from Lacutus when a lot of the information from Starfleet that he had went into the hive mind. Um, So that was potentially why she wasn't allowed in
3: very possibly yes um or just the wrong the wrong admiral just who had some prejudices against Borg.
0: Yeah,
2: as an excuse
0: patrick have you got a nice little bit of trivia for us
2: i've got a little bit of trivia it's not a it's not a prodigy trivia okay but, uh, my, fa- my favorite sure. uh, my favorite trivia is that uh and this might be too well-known to be trivia. I'm, I'm not sure. I never <laughs> knew it, and so it excites me. But it's um, in Star Trek Four, you know, the, the doctor, Jillian Taylor?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: That, that was uh, originally supposed to be Eddie Murphy. No, no, I did not I, know, that. Didn't know that. No, I didn't know that either. Eddie Murphy was no, on Paramount lot at the time, yeah. and they were hoping that he would be an astrophysicist that would help them. Get back, get back to their future, and uh, and things fall apart at the last minute, and so they had to substitute him out for for the woman that you see. I, I hope they kept
3: the love story between Eddie Murphy and Captain Kirk. Right, right. <laughs> but I, think but I I'm thought secret. that was
2: funny because it was a, it was that, that it was that in that period right there in the 80s where like uh eddie murphy was wildly famous and, uh, yeah, and they would have have I,
0: I'm, I'm kind yeah. of glad they didn't do that i think it would have took something away yeah. from from it
2: what it did was it kind of spread some of the fun out too because like some of that comedy that was written for his role and for like his progression with the characters then right. got off and got given to you know, like those, uh, the experience on the bus with like Spock yeah, and like, yeah. the, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. It became a uh, comedy that could be given to, you know, like Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner.
1: And
3: no, like you're right. That. I I feel like if it was Eddie Murphy, you wouldn't be able to see it as anything other than an Eddie Murphy movie, and then and then it would at that point it would just become almost like Scooby Doo meets you know like absolutely
2: absolutely. Mm. If you take an Eddie Murphy line, you give it to Leonard Nimoy to read flat. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's very (laughs) funny.
0: there was a lot of him in that film. I loved it. I, the lines that they just got wrong because they just were in the requ- wrong time. You know, he did too much LDS. That's just hilarious. Yeah. Um,
3: double, double dumbass on you. That's it, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> what does it mean, exact change? Um, yeah. On I, I that think subject,
1: it, it, did you... Uh, I don't know if you saw... This is kind of a, an extra bit of add-on trivia that's just come into my head because we're on the subject. Um, did you see in the um, notes for Picard in the last series, you know, the punk on the bus in Star Trek 4 that Spock does the, the neck grip and everybody's clapping and turns the music off. It's the same punk that's with the radio in the bus in Picard that uh, Seven sorts out. Oh, Yeah, it yeah.
3: yeah, it's, yeah. The yeah. It's, actor. it's the same It's the same actor. Yeah. It's a gentleman named Kirk Thatcher who actually was he was actually uh, working on the production of star Trek at, uh, on the previous films. And I think by, he might've been working in, on the production of that film as well. When uh, Nimoy right. was like, Hey, why don't you play that character? And he's, I think he's done a little bit of acting since. Uh, yeah. And he's gone on to have a very prolific career as a, as a writer director. He does a lot of stuff with the Muppets actually. Oh, cool. Yeah. I think, I, I think he was the, he created a couple of, uh puppets uh for for the muppets dark crystal like that sort of stuff uh, uh, oh nice yeah and curiously this is just totally random i was uh nickelodeon had a, an event where we did like uh sometimes they'll, with the pandemic just f- as a benefit for their um for their employees they will offer these sort of like classes and we did like a sake class tasting class and you know, there. So they sent sake to our houses, and then yeah. there was a person there from a, a sake uh, company there, kind of like guiding us through, like what do you taste cool. in that and this, and it was a little bit like a wine tasting thing. And I said like, oh, this one almost reminds me of sort of Petrichor. And then suddenly this thing said like, hey, I love that uh, that um, metaphor. And I and it was Kirk Thatcher, the punk on the bus, oh. <laughs> and he was in the class with um, me. No uh, way! Wow! There. Yeah. And it turned out cool. that he was directing on another uh, project on Nickelodeon. I had no idea. And I, I like double-taked and I was like, wait, what?
1: Yeah, it's kind of when two worlds collide and you, you really don't expect it, isn't it? Them type of moment. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> uh,
0: that's just, I would just quickly go back to, because we talked, you started talking about science there and, and, and what could work, what wouldn't work. Um, and I, I must admit, this is one thing I should really have thought of. And I, I, I didn't even look it up. So d- do you have when you when you go through your script process, do you have a scientific person that you can go to to say, can we do this? Because I know Andre Bomeras did uh, sort of the, 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 the you know, DS9 uh, TNG uh, Voyager. He went on to do uh, uh, the Orville, in fact, didn't he? But um, yeah, but uh, I just wondered if you had someone and you went and said, look, we're thinking of doing this. Is it possible? And it's like, yeah, yeah, we could use, you know, the many worlds theory or whatever it might be to to.
3: Yeah, we uh we have um we have sort of like a roster of of sort of creative consultants actually that help us with that sort of thing. The 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 person who is sort of the on staff so to speak uh sort of science consultant of all Star Trek currently is a friend of mine, Dr. Aaron McDonald, uh who she is an astrophysicist and she yeah. has a, a doctorate in as a phys- astrophysics. She did her doctorate on gravimetric or uh, gravitational waves <laughs> and So, um, she, but she's also a huge sci-fi science fiction fan. She has Voyager tattooed on her arm. And And so, um, you know, she, for, for most of those questions, you know, like I, I have a basic understanding of, of some high level physics, um, But so like usually we can talk and i'm not totally out of my depth but if i'm stuck or sometimes she'll see well every script will go to her and she'll do like a a site pass and like here's how i would tweak this to make sure that this uh sort of stuff works for instance you know um uh interesting thing we realized the other day uh like i remember we were talking about the, the famous uh janeway line where she says like ah uh, ah coffee the finest organic suspension ever devised right or or what yeah. is it the, and it turns out that uh suspension is actually not the correct term for for that so scientifically speaking um it's oh, I, I believe it's uh something else like an admixture or something like that um but uh that's the sort of stuff she catches and tries to to fix she she does sometimes ding us on the number of times we use the word quantum and i'm like i'm not just throwing it in there that's star trek uses quantum all the time <laughs> quantum timelines quantum torpedoes quantum drive. dry we do. There, quantum, there are
2: things when quantum comes, entity when it comes yeah. to the to, <laughs> when it comes to the artwork and stuff too um we've got uh wonderful designers and stuff like that that come up with these really imaginative looks for these things and then we 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 take the artwork and we run it by Dr. Aaron so that she can say, well, you know, I don't think that's necessarily going to have like an energy core coming out of the middle of it, you know, so maybe if you did this instead and then we'll modify the artwork. We have an episode uh, coming up in the back 10 that has uh, a lot of equations in it. So we, you know, we went out to Dr. Aaron for all of those equations Uh, you know, it's just stuff like that just to make sure it's accurate yeah. and make sure everything is, uh, is on the up and up.
3: yeah. And sometimes when we have like a genetic question, you know, that that's maybe slight, like slightly outside of Dr. Aaron's purview as an astrophysicist, uh, we've brought in other experts as well, like Dr. Muhammad Noor, um, you know, who I think just got promoted to be interim dean of Duke University, <laughs> but he's also no, a well, very, well. very nice guy and very knowledgeable about genetics and a huge Star Trek fan. I think he's even written a book called like the genetics of Star Trek or some, something to that effect. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, no, so whenever we were kind of getting into territory of like how genetics work and how uh, epigenetics work and phenotypes and genotypes, he could give us like something that made us sound very smart <laughs> that we can drop that techno <laughs> babble in. Um, I do. The
0: one thing I do love about Star Trek uh, or most of Star Trek, in fact, is the fact that, uh, it's that attention to detail in trying to get science as, close as possible to what is or could be
2: yeah um, there is also I mean this, this is some fun trivia we do have uh, we do have a person on staff too that is uh, can construct languages for us if we need to construct languages so uh, the Valdicott language is a constructed language it is real so when yeah. you see when you see uh, you know in the first episode when they it reveals that they're on the, uh, the mining asteroid, yeah. You know, when that Chiron flips, that Vatakot language is real. And then you see, later you see the Vatakot language on panels that are in mm-hmm. the Rev 12. Uh, and so that stuff is real. And oh, cool. also when, when Gwen sits down with the, with the Kishun child and is teaching her language and that kind of floating ring that's floating around them, you yeah. know, there are, all, there are all sorts of languages built into there. Built into there, there's uh, like Vatakot, there's uh, Klingon, I know for sure. Um, but we put a couple of different languages in there and they're, they're all pointing to the words that they should be. I mean, so it's that, that ring of, of graphics is yeah. uh, is accurate if, if somebody wants to go in there and really like get into the language.
0: I'm sure yes. someone will now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> It'll be the new how to,
1: will Learn Von McCartt.
0: Yeah. Although, if you do now have episodes where there's no UT, a uh, universal translator, and they and they have to sort of say the native languages now, the other voice actor is going to really. <laughs> we've got to learn this okay, now. Yeah,
2: we do, we have, we do have lines. They, there is there are like uh, about a lines in there.
0: Yeah, um,
3: so. we also um, we also have a Klingon. Uh, language expert. Whenever we have Klingon, like I think Gwen speaks Klingon, we've established. Yeah. You know that's one of the thousands of languages that she's spoken. So whenever we whenever we have Klingon language come up, we have a Klingon expert. Uh, her, I believe her name is Jen Baum, but she goes by Klingon Pop Warrior because she also has a a, <laughs> uh, uh, a, um, a side business, I suppose, uh, as a as a music artist, and she records yeah. Klingon music. Uh, um, oh, cool. So we—it's interesting because I think we—we, we at one point, wanted to use a bit of a Klingon song from, uh, you know, TNG, and she—and she came back with like because she's so tapped into the Klingon, you know, language, which has evolved into its own sort of subculture of people, you know, linguists that in their spare time try to make sense of it all. Uh, And she's like, oh, well, that one is gibberish, but this one is actually translatable. But if you want, we could try to retcon that language that's from TNG and make it actually kind of make sense in something. Uh, And so, like, it's, it's amazing. That's the great thing about working in Star Trek is, like, there are fans around the world that, you know do a lot of the hard work for you <laughs> and and either have assembled these things or headcanons or reason these out or so even if it's like oh this is how it always worked in my head i can then go online and then see that the consensus says yes absolutely uh and, and i was like well we can't all be wrong right <laughs> and then <laughs> and then or sometimes they'll say it works because of in this episode they say this and i was like oh i forgot about that perfect <laughs> so so it's it's this great it's a fantastic resource that i think a lot of people ask you know isn't it intimidating to work on a franchise that has 50 years of lore and canon and i'm like i've been training my whole life for this man <laughs> <laughs> i'm the man for the job yeah
0: there's a lovely light there's a lovely sequence in, in the film galaxy quest if you've seen it uh, mm-hmm. where, where they actually have to contact the, the the geek on earth who who's the fan of the show because he's the only yeah, one that's got the schematics on the yeah. he can it can direct them around their own ship because they're actors and you can tell them why well, you need to go left at the next corridor because they would yeah. mapped the whole thing out and the sequence of the the doors the doors closing i thought that was hilarious i thought it was brilliant but it's kind yeah, of the played, same
3: played by a young justin long no less
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and the, the other thing is as well like they were said star trek guides people into certain careers so You've got people that will go into astronomy you've got people that will go into physics people that will go into lingu- learn as a linguist and you know that that kind of helps for the shows going forward you building your pool of experts that's come in and uh, help you out as well
3: yeah it's it and oh. the tra- star trek fans are so passionate man like you know if you you there's they're a f- fantastic resource and sometimes sometimes i'll i'll tweet something and then and i'll just like i i did a tweet thread a year or two ago and was just like here's a list of all the amazing faster than light technology of warp warp war, faster than maximum warp technologies that voyager brought back and even then there was like two or three that fans like oh what about this one what about this one and i was like i love you guys you're my people
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, i love it um, we are Coming towards the end of our time, there's so much we still haven't talked about. So um, we, we may have to just uh, do this again when 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 the next series is out. Um, but um, yeah, definitely. Obviously, we've got uh, you. You've just said we've got another uh, ten episodes coming out, uh, which I think uh, we've kind of read sort of towards later this year. year is that it? is that kind of?
3: Yeah, but I believe I we're still. I don't think we've officially announced the date yet. But stay tuned. I imagine that's probably going to come. Sooner than later. Um, but yeah, Wait, later
2: this By time. the end of, by the end of the year is the is the line that the executives have told us to say. Yeah.
0: yeah. Hey, we got that right, Dave. We got that right. That's good. Yeah. <laughs>
2: and uh, I think we're already
1: uh, greenlit for a second season as well, aren't we?
0: Yes, and we've that's we've out done, there.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. we've written 40 40 episodes we've written, and are they're all in various stages oh, of
1: production wow. as we speak. That's awesome. well I'll yeah. well, yeah.
0: absolutely. Um Well, good luck with it all, guys. Uh, We will continue to keep watching it on Paramount Plus, of course. Now it's here in the UK. Um, And, yeah, I I think uh, I've not got anything else. Dave?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the the only other thing I was going to ask about, just purely for my own interest, is uh, (laughs) (coughs) how much uh, involvement uh, did uh, Eugene Roddenberry have at the, the start when the whole talk of Prodigy, started did he did he sort of sit in on meetings or give any pointers from kind of the Roddenberry estate of what they'd like to core values to be kept in the show or certain direction that they'd like to see it go or anything like that
3: yeah well that was so interesting because uh, Eugene Roddenberry and the folks at, at I think it's called Roddenberry productions um you know yeah. obviously they they wanted to make sure we got it right you know and i was so nervous when we kind of presented what our initial idea for the show was going yeah. to be to to the powers that be and i i remember they came in and they had they they brought everybody hats which is awesome and and oh, like, nice. and then and then i was curious like are they just going to be like uh, this is good this is bad but then they said you nailed it, you know, and they, they literally said, you, you've, you've fully embraced and completely hit what, what I think my dad would be proud of and what he was going for with the series uh, of hope in a hopeless place. And, and, you know, out finding strength in the many striving towards a common goal of exploration and curiosity. Like this is absolutely the show that I think my dad wish was wished was on the air and uh well done and like i almost teared up <laughs> hearing that that <from laughs> you them. would do with that wouldn't you yeah because wow, what a you know, I, I i'm i'm sort of an eagle scout i'm an a plus student so like i want everything to be like perfect and not get negative feedback but i have to always emotionally prepare myself for that so then it's when nice. the, so then when the people you know that probably know this stuff as best as anyone basically say you're doing a great job please keep it up <laughs> that's that's about as the best feedback as you can get
1: wow and the only other thing that uh, i was going to check as well obviously it was fantastic in the uh, the episode with the kabayashi maru uh where Dal did his captain training and bridge training and we got some of the the legacy characters back um obviously odo who we mentioned earlier Ahura, um, Spock, Scotty, um, I mean, that was just amazing to do that. I think a lot, a lot of those were archival audio that you had to work with to, to get the right lines, and I think yeah. the only one that recorded live, um, new recording, was um, Gates McFadden,
3: wasn't it? That's right, yeah, and that, uh, as Patrick can attest to, that that episode was insanely difficult to make. You know, and even on my end, when I was trying to piece it together, you know, uh, we just kind of had this. uh, Originally, we weren't, we weren't, we were gonna try to bring in other actors, but you know, for one reason or another, it couldn't happen. You know, uh, um, um, you know, Nichelle Nichols, uh, we wanted to bring in, but then she had sort of, she's not well uh, enough to, to record. And then, you know, I had, we had written uh, a whole part for um, René Auberginois, uh, and then, unfortunately, like, he just, passed as we were, him, yeah. Yeah, just as we were getting ready to kind of well, spread right away from him again, I, I I don't think any of us realized he was that uh, ill. And no, passed. it was kept very quiet, wasn't it? He passed away, and it was it was really devastating, but, you know, we, we kind of picked ourselves back up, and we were like, we have to find, uh, like, we can't just take him out of it at this point because the whole point must be a good tribute to his character. So I basically at that point doubled down and said, I'll find a way to make it work. And I wound up, I've said elsewhere, like I wound up watching probably 40 or 50 episodes of star trek top to bottom and reading yeah. 80 or 90 scripts and just trying to find lines and dropping them in experimenting you know and then tracking down the lines and giving the track yeah. code to the people and sometimes the line would be good on paper but then i you'd have to go like oh actually it, it doesn't work because he's like walking across a room or he's rattling yeah. microphones or or he just delivers it weird or there's a weird edit in the original footage exactly
1: it's not just finding the line you want it's finding the line you want with like you say the quality to fit it into the show
3: yeah and you know in the end i i think we got it mostly there and we and we kind of realized that like a it is a holodeck simulation so it's it's okay if it's not perfect it's a computer just approximating Um, yeah and also, um, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to remind people that these are from real episodes to encourage them to go out and see these incredible performances. Watch those, yeah. And have a young kid who maybe is like, Who's that who's who's that uh, that uh guy sitting sitting in you know the the ops chair dad? And then is like, Well, that's Odo, and let me let me pull up some episodes. Yeah like that that's my dream and i've heard from some people that it's that, that that's been yeah the, that's
1: been their sort of line into the, the the older star trek and going back to ds9 and voyager and tng and the original series to see these characters in in
2: full as they were yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, i mean like we we, do, we we debated it at length too you know like we talked about bringing in people to like play and it just like it didn't it didn't seem or feel right to not use the original content of these characters uh, that we were kind of making a tribute for, you know, in their original form in the episode. And we thought that 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 too would be, uh, you know, what plays to the audience and what people would enjoy about it, so yeah. Uh. It was It was a wow
0: moment. I must admit, I didn't read ahead, so I didn't look at any spoilers. So as I was watching it, and that that the episode came up, and then all of a sudden, you've got these characters. For me, it was like, oh yes, oh they did that. Yeah. That's good. I like that. And that, uh,
3: that and that was very much just a moment of discovery when we were breaking the episode too, because it was not. And it, we didn't go into writing that episode saying, oh, this is going to be the episode where we bring in a bunch of Star Trek cameos. We went in writing like, this is the episode where Dal kind of. It, it has a, um, a revelation uh, and sort of a, a snap to reality when he faces the hardest thing that any cadet can do, which is the Kobayashi Maru test um, and what that means for his character. And then when we get, and it was only in, in the, the breaking of the episode of like, well, what does the Kobayashi Maru episode like actually look like? Uh, you know, in the 24th in the, the uh, century, and yes. we realized, like, oh, A, we've never seen that in the age of right, the holodeck. Right. <laughs> but, then, but then in the original Kobayashi Maru, it wasn't just, like, instructors. It was the original people who, yeah, were, yeah. who were the, the bridge, the bridge right. crew of the Enterprise. Yeah. So clearly, that, that's at least some element of, like, we're going to give you the best officers possible. And then it's all on you as the would-be captain to navigate through this situation. And so, like, I was like, what would that look like in the age of the holodeck? And we were like, well, I guess, I suppose, because they can, as we've seen in many episodes, it's you can literally summon any historical figure, and the computer can create a, an approximation of that. So, it would totally make sense if another layer in that age would be like selecting a bridge crew to create that simulacrum of control yeah. so that when the ultimate lesson of a no win situation hits you it hits all the harder because you know you it wasn't about your bridge crew being you know the best of the best it was all on how you handled uh, a no win scenario so well, oh, like that was a,
2: like really hard to design. That's one of those 50-50 things that I was talking about at the beginning of this podcast is like we went into that and, you know, we've never seen like the Enterprise-D do the Kobayashi Maru. How much of the original stuff from the Kobayashi Maru do you bring back? Do you work with JJ's version of the Kobayashi Maru? Do you work with, you know, like the original like uh, Wrath of Khan version of like the Kobayashi Maru? Yeah. You know, and, and what elements do you borrow? And What things do you, do you call back to? What do you invent as new? Um, and I think we struck a, a, a pretty nice balance. But some of that stuff, you just have to take a leap. Yeah, yeah definitely.
3: Some of, it, some of it was pulled from Beta Canon, too, where I was like, this is where I, how I think it would go. And then I would, then I was like, was well, not there a novel? And I re- go back and look at the novel, and they wound up doing something very similar, if not identical to what I was like, aha! We can't all be wrong. This, is, this, must, be how, <laughs> yeah, yeah. this must be how it works. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, amazing.
1: Um, uh, I mean, have you got um, a hit list of, of kind of legacy characters that you would maybe like to fit into the story somewhere along the line or maybe Delta Quadrant species we've seen before that could maybe fit in into the story going forward?
3: uh so the answer that. is yes with the, the answer the answer is yes and you'll have to watch the series to see if yeah i'm
1: going to say to which ones ahead. tell us tell us all of
0: them <laughs> <that>. <laughs> so we'll start on yes, number and one watch no, I, I sure. like Good the thing about
3: legacy characters in particular is you know, we always wanted to make sure that this wasn't just like a cameo for cameo's sake, right? Not you know, me. there always had to be a motivation for the characters journey of our our main characters, you know, the yeah. prodigy crew. And so if we did bring in a character, it wouldn't just be to say, you know, like, oh cool, look, it's it's Quark. Hey Quark, you know, and then die. <laughs> no. Uh, like we it, it, In CGI in particular, creating an original character model is a very expensive and time intensive endeavor. It's not about just yeah. bringing them in as a day rate to, you know. Feed yeah. So, like, usually when we do that, we have it with a very specific intention of like, what does this mean to their character journey? What are they going to glean from this character, this legacy character? Yeah. And why is the legacy character there? And what does that mean for the greater Star Trek universe in this particular period of the mid 2380s, which, as you've pointed out, is wide open pasture. And is, as there's a couple of important moments from the movies and Picard, but beyond that, it's about 20 years of who knows what happened at yeah. that time. And that's sort of our blank canvas to paint with.
0: Well, we've got uh, quite a lot more episodes to uh, find out how you do that. We have, Uh, we'll be watching your brush strokes intently, won't we? (laughs) Certainly will. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Um, Everyone can watch, of course, Prodigy on Paramount Plus. The first 10 episodes are there now, uh, and they're worth a watch. Absolutely,
1: massively worthwhile, aren't they? Uh, is there anything that you guys um, want to promote um, in terms of other projects coming up or causes, charities you're passionate about? You'd just like to mention to our audience on here.
3: Um, I think the big thing is just you know for the UK fans listening, just check out Paramount Plus. You know that's that, that's where you'll be definitely be able to get all all Star Trek uh, sooner than later um you know and i think it's also airing on sky and i think uh um and yeah i mean that's the funny thing about uh animation is like uh, sure we have other projects cooking in the works but they take years to make so yeah so um i would say the big thing is just stay tuned for uh more more news coming at comic-con and beyond
0: and uh more episodes later this year cool cool Cool. And uh, of course, uh, you can find uh, anything that we post. Whatever anything we find out, we'll post as well on our socials, and the links to those can be found at geekyguys.co.uk, along with all our other stuff. Like yeah, that yeah. Out. Oh, so, yeah. I,
3: if you want to follow me on on Twitter and Instagram, uh, my my handle is at goodaron. G O O D A A R O N.
1: We'll make Patrick, sure that
2: we are. I'm just recently on Twitter because I don't use it very often, but uh, I'm trying to follow in Aaron's lead, so I'm at Patrick Krebs on Twitter, um, and my Instagram is is, is private. So, cool, there we go.
0: lovely. Oh, well, uh, that's it for now. Um, and it, our regular listeners will uh, be no doubt in the middle of uh, listening to uh, our standard tea break podcast series four at the minute, Dave, which we've got another episode coming up yes. soon. Yeah. Um, uh, hopefully the end of this weekend, actually. Um, so that'll be up and out uh, today or tomorrow. Uh, but uh, for now, it's just uh, thank you once again for you coming on, guys. And uh, good luck with the rest of project. and we'll uh, catch you later.
2: Thanks for, thanks for having us. Thank, thank you. you. so lot, guys? It's been brilliant.
0: Live, live long and prosper and
3: uh, peace and long life. Peace and long life.